Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you, Charlie. That's yours. Sorry. Oh, I'm touching your mask. <laughs> it's good to see you. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 10. That's going to be where we're at today. We're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. I bet you're tired of looking at maps with blue and red states on it by now, aren't you? Everyone a little tired of that? It'll all be over in a few days. Listen, on that, you know, it, this election times, especially volatile ones like what we're going through right now, um, they can induce a lot of panic and anxiety in people. You're starting to see it. I read an article the other day on how psychologists are noticing a gigantic uptick in the amount of anxiety people are carrying with them into sessions, um, uh, even over past elections. Let me just say, I know, I know that we're going to experience panic and anxiety over the next several days, and I know there's going to be a lot of vitriol moving back and forth between people over the next several days. Whether there's a civil war or things are set on fire or whatever like that, I won't, won't even pretend to guess what that's going to look like. But I know things are going to be difficult, right? But can I just encourage you that the church of God was built for times like pandemics and volatile elections? These, these are the moments that God's church was forged for, that we would enjoy him in moments like this and in seasons like this, that we would celebrate his thanks or, or, or be thankful for what he has done for us. We would celebrate his grace towards us in seasons like this, that we would make disciples in days like this, that we would evangelize in days like this. So listen, I know it's going to be tough and this should still yet be our best moment as a church. Church capital C. This should be one of our finest seasons. So let's, let me encourage you on that. Don't panic. God is in control. Regardless of who takes office and regardless of how quick it happens or does not happen, you need to know that nothing happens without God being sovereign over that moment. Without God being sovereign over that moment. And God built his church with the blood of his son knowing ahead of time what was going to happen with this election. So you just need to know that. And as you pray and as you kind of walk through this election season, just do so with a steady heart, with a steady, unpanicked heart. All right, that's it. That's a totally different sermon, but we're in Ecclesiastes 10 today. Um, listen, this passage is a little bit awkward in how it reads. It's written in a proverb form, okay? This is the same guy that wrote Proverbs. I know a few weeks ago I picked on the book of Proverbs a little bit, not because I find it to be unhelpful, I think it's a great book. It's not my favorite because of how it's written. It's not, it's not written like I like to read things. I like the information I take in to be chapter and verse. I want one complete thought followed by another complete thought, all of them in a line, and that's just not what Proverbs is ever going to give us, right? It's not. Um, I kind of said it was a little bit like getting life-giving wisdom from a very highly distracted person. If you've ever been in a conversation with somebody and they're very distracted, they're giving you something that's very important to them, they're very excited to give it to you, and then something gets their attention, maybe it's a notification on their watch or their phone, and then when they snap out of it, they come back and they say, what was I talking about? What were we talking about? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyway, new topic. And they start going in this way, and then what happens? Then they remember what they were talking about, right? Oh, I remember what I was talking about. It's like listening to a toddler tell a story. You can't flow chart it. It's going in every different way. Everyone's darting around. And that's the way this feels. It feels like a toddler or a distracted person telling a story. But what you need to know about Proverbs in format is that it is how wisdom was dispensed 
in these days. The ancient Hebrew culture, they would have read this very differently than you and I obviously read it today. It it doesn't read as easily. I mean, we're reading a 3,000-year-old text, but we're doing so with a 21st century Western mind. And because this chapter is in Proverbs form, it's going to be an exercise for you and me to kind of take the bits and pieces of the different things that he is saying and maybe rack them together so we could draw a line through the middle of it, right? It's kind of like when you walk up on a pool table and you see balls scattered all over the table, different numbers, different colors. We're going to have to rack the very bits and pieces of wisdom together so that it matters for our mind and helps interpret us as a people, okay? And today, also, Solomon is pivoting and his direction in this book. If you've been following with us, maybe online, or if you've been following in and out of this setting right here, you will know that over the last nine chapters, this wise preacher, this Solomon, has been talking about how life under the sun is futility without God in the middle of it, without God. So he has tried different experiments. He's tried building things, producing things. He's tried women, he's tried money, he's tried alcohol, he's tried parties anything he can to find out what it takes to get utmost meaning and satisfaction and joy in this world. And he's come to the end of himself every time and said, you can't. You can't. Living life under the sun, which is the phrase he uses throughout the whole book, living life under the sun will just land you in futility, madness, meaninglessness. But as we saw last week and we're going to see this week, he's pivoting with the idea of, but you still have to live. You still have life. So how are you going to live it? How are you going to live the rest of your life? What are you going to do with it? And what you do with your life can be classified as a life of wisdom or a life of folly. And that's something he talks about all through the Proverbs, and he's really going to double-click on in this chapter. Do you live a life of folly or do you live a life of wisdom? And what does that look like? But really, as we move forward through this chapter, the question I want you to ask yourself is, why am I so attracted to folly in my life? Why do I love it so much? Why do I love being foolish, but I hate it in other people? Why do I love folly for me and hate it for you? Right? He's going to help us with that today. So Ecclesiastes 10 is our passage. We are going to see Christ very clearly in this passage because he is the hero even of this passage. And this is what he says. Chapter 10, verse 1, King Solomon, you and me, he says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, Do not leave your place for calmness. We'll lay great offense to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, 
He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no vantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and the princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. All right. There you have it. It was pretty scattered. I warned you. The main idea of that is be wise, though. We can agree there. The main idea, the big idea is just to be wise and don't be a moron. Even though it's scattered all over, we can kind of extract that and squeeze that and let that interpret us. But if we were to kind of take the bits and pieces and, like I said, rack them together, one of the very big first principles we see, even from the very first verse, is that fools will easily break things that took a long time to build. Like a perfume, which is not easy to make. Or a kingdom driven into the ground by a a bad ruler. Kingdoms take some time to build, right? Or houses that leak And the roof sags in. Folly will corrupt quickly what a bunch of energy and time and resource went into building. We know this, right? I mean, we intuit this. You you could spend decades on building your reputation, right? Decades working on it. Hard. 30, 40, 50 years. And you can ruin it with one tweet. One tweet. You could work on your marriage for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And you can ruin it with one indiscretion. That's all it takes. It's easier to ruin things than to build things. It's easier to ruin things than we think. This is what Ray Ortland says in his book, The Gospel. He says, every one of us is always five minutes away from moral disaster. That's it. Five minutes. Think about that for a moment. All of us are. And we already know this to a certain extent, that just one bad decision can cost us everything. Some of you, you think of high school or college. Those are times where we make really bad decisions and we don't even really understand what's on the line. Even when I was putting this together and I was reading the Word, I had a flashback to whenever I was a freshman at Texas Tech. And we thought it would be awesome and hilarious to tie a ski rope behind our friend's little mini truck. And then we would strap on plastic rollerblades and we would just ski behind that truck on the highway. And whoever was the first person to let go of the rope was the chicken, right? So we'd have two or three dudes bouncing around back there on plastic rollerblades, right? And I know you're already judging me because I said the word rollerblade. It was cool in 95, right? I know only the French wear them now, but back then everybody had them. And we were skiing behind this truck, feeling invincible. What a dumb decision. I I was one pebble away from being wadded up into just a piece of whatever on the side of the highway. And it would have ruined my life. One bad decision would have ruined my life. And the guy driving the truck. 
and all of my friends and my parents and all of those who loved me, right? A life wasted over a dare or a laugh. But even making bad moral decisions, well, you don't have to be a college student for that. You don't have to be in your 19, 18, 17, 20-year-old range to do something like that. It happens to all of us. We drop our guard, and whenever we drop our guard, we can ruin things that took a long time to build. Like when the marriage is dry, going through a tough season, and we drop our guard, and that's all it takes. It could be catastrophic. When work is brutal, and we just want to just treat ourselves. When money is low, when sleep is little, when the temper is high, we drop our guard, and like a boxer, that's when we take a punch. This is how 1 Peter addresses this type of living. He says this in 5 verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be sober-minded, which means be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He actually says a few chapters before this, to prepare your mind for action. That's what it means to be sober-minded, to prepare your mind for action. It's when our guard is down that we say something that can't be unheard. It's when we drop our guard that we do something that can't be undone. And we take something that was beautiful, beautiful, and took a lot of work, and we ruin it quickly. And listen, I think we also can agree it's far easier to break something than it is to build it. But also, that no one is five minutes away from moral disaster without knowing a little bit about themselves to know what that disaster could look like. We're all broken, but we're kind of broken in different ways, right? We all kind of know when we drop our guard what that looks like. Where is it that you drop your guard the most? That's really a question you should be asking yourself. How are you dropping your guard? When I'm overtaxed and I'm underslept, I'm stressed out, I can be a fool. I could ruin things. Some things that were valuable, some things that took a lot to build. I know when I am underslept and I am overtaxed and I am stressed out, I know the lion is prowling at that moment. I can feel his breath on my neck. I know he's there. He's waiting for me to drop my guard. See, in Proverbs 9, Solomon says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? All that means, and that confuses people because of the terminology. It just means that your wisdom begins where God is the centerpiece of your reverence and your honor and your esteem. When God is the middle, when God is in the center, when he's the centerpiece of all of your worship and honor, that is where wisdom begins. But we could also add that wisdom is also knowing where we can be fools, where we drop our guard. Wisdom is knowing where we can be foolish. But the original question is, why do we like folly so much? We all know it's dumb, right? It's, it's, it's dumb to be dumb. And it leads to madness. And it consumes us. And we read the Proverbs and we read this passage and we see the contrast. I mean, it's, it's over and over and over again. The wise live this way and it works out really well. The morons do this and it never ends up well. We see that contrast over and over again and no one argues with this. And yet, whenever we read those passages or we read a passage like today, we don't let it interpret us as much as our neighbor. We're reading this for other people even right now, aren't we? For somebody else. Because we're not fools we're wise people that just have foolish days. That's what I call a passive reading of the Bible, where you're reading it, but not really for yourself, right? And we do this a lot. In fact, the more 
the more you become a student of the Bible, the more time you spend reading the scriptures, the more you will be tempted to begin reading it for other people around you and stop, stop applying it to yourself. Right? It's kind of like reading a cookbook to someone else who is cooking. We agree with what we're reading. We nod our head, but we don't see the personal relevance of it because we're not the one cooking. So here we read about fools breaking things, about acting moronic, and we think about our neighbor, or we think about our spouse, or we think about our boss, or we think about our kids, or, or we think about our rulers, which is in this passage. He says it, not me. He says it. He speaks to it here. Throughout history, rulers have acted foolishly, right? Do I really have to sell this point? Probably not. And if you think that I'm saying this because there's an election this week, I'm not, right? Just look back 3,000 years. We have Solomon here describing a situation where he sees the wrong people in power. That's what he's saying. It's a shame. It's a shame. Woe to you, O land, he says. Woe to you when your king is a toddler and your princes are getting drunk in the morning. That's what that means. Listen, if I was leading a nation... I would be tempted to embrace folly as well. I think it's natural in all of us. But the problem with folly and leadership is it bleeds down to society. Everyone else starts to pick it up as well. You know, John Piper wrote an article this last week, maybe two weeks ago now, um, that got a lot of attention and it got a lot of controversy for what he was saying as he comments on the election, as he's virtually commenting on both parties and his view of it. And it was a little bit of a lightning rod but one of the things he, he, and you can Google it on your own if you want, but one of the things he commented on was the connection between the character of the ruler and then the character of the people. And he says this, there is a character connection between rulers and subjects. He says, when the Bible describes a king by saying Jeroboam, in this case, sinned and made Israel to sin, he's not saying that Jeroboam twisted their arm to make them sin. He's saying that he influenced and shaped the people by his sin. And that's the calling of a leader, believe it or not. If you feel like you're called to high leadership or you know you're in a leadership position now, that is what it means. It gives shape to the people that you are leading. That's what leaders do. And yes, your character matters. And yes, folly is contagious. It's contagious. But it's not just our neighbors and it's not just our rulers and it's not just the celebrities that we follow on Instagram. We are all five minutes away from moral disaster, all of us, right? And when we have the courage to let a passage like this interpret us, when we have the courage to do that, we don't really know what to do with it, do we? We kind of walk away with just try harder. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be wise. I'm not supposed to be a fool, so I will just try harder not to be a fool. But how's that working? Just trying harder, right? I mean, that's the sense I get sometimes when I walk away from passages like the Proverbs. Be wise, don't be a fool. I got it. I'll try harder. Amen. Next chapter. As a church of missionaries, which we are, we need to know how to give people an option to their folly. What's the option to the folly? Whenever someone comes up to you, whether they're in this room or they're in your missional community or they're across your street or they're at work and they come to you and they say, why do I act the way that I do? Why do I keep doing the same foolish things that I'm doing? Why can't I stop? What will you tell them? It can't be try harder, right? You can't just say try harder. This is why we do what we do. We get it from the garden. 
where Adam stood on his little patch of ground in a perfect landscape with perfect fruit and perfect food and a perfect body with a perfect marriage in a perfect land with a perfect God on a perfect day where he stood there and he says, I should have more than I have now. And I want more than I have now. And I desire more than I have now. And I deserve more than I have now. And that led to the very first foolish action in a landscape of wisdom. This was mankind's first folly. There was no such thing as folly before this moment. And just like our passage says today, Adam quickly broke what was beautifully built. Right? But it didn't start this way. It didn't. Right? Ecclesiastes 10.13, we'll put it back up on the screen. It says this, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. So we see this evolution. What is maybe folly and debate, foolish statements, foolish talk, ending up in something that looks more like madness. And we actually see this in the garden, right? The serpent comes up and he starts talking foolishness by saying, hey, that food you have in your hand, did God really say you can't eat that? All the perfection around you. Did your God say you can't enjoy all of this? Which we know is foolishness. It's not at all what God said. But that's not where it ended. It ended in madness. Whenever he looked at him and said, you could be your own God. You could be God. And ever since that moment, we've all have easily found folly. And when we let it run unchecked in our life, it ends up with evil madness, as Solomon says today. That's what we do. And then God turns into somebody that holds us back, someone who oppresses us. This is why the gospel is so beautiful, because we have a second Adam that comes, who is our king, the son of nobility, right? It's a little bit of a picture of that in this passage. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, this describes wisdom. This describes wisdom. See, it's not just folly that is contagious. It's not just the folly of a leader that shapes the people into folly. It is also wisdom in the leader that will shape wisdom in the people who follow. And here we have a picture of the wise, people who feast at the proper time. They speak at the proper time. They work at the proper time. They interact with each other properly. And why? Because their king is wise. Their king is wise. You know what's cool about our gospel story is we are not just free from death. We are not just free from death, but we're free from being fools. We're free from the compulsion to must be foolish. You didn't used to be if you were a Christian. You used to be helpless to be a fool. You'd have no real choice, no real fight against the desires and the hungers and the urges that your flesh demand until the gospel comes along. You're not just free from death. You're free to have a joy-filled sobriety about this life. Now we live in an age where surrendering to your inner hunger and your urges and your desires, that's applauded. That's just applauded today. Being driven by desire, for a lot of people in society today, it means being true to yourself, means being honest with yourself, means being authentic. And if you are not doing this and you have a filter and you put restraint on your flesh, well, that's seen as dangerous because you can't be truly you if you're not truly you, right? You've seen this, this badge of authenticity that our culture loves to wear. It says, just dismiss others. 
doesn't matter what they say, especially if they disagree with you, dismiss them entirely. And if anyone rebukes you, abandon them. Don't put up with critique. If it feels good, trust yourself and do it. Therefore, the Christian is seen as a person who lives a life of repression, like they're trapped, like they're not free to enjoy anything. That's how society sees you. That's how society sees the church. The media makes you out. Hollywood makes you out to look like you hate your life because you can't even fit inside of your own skin because you can't be honest and you can't be authentic, which couldn't be further from the truth. But you've seen this, right? Whatever movie you're watching, whatever TV show you watch, enter the Christian, right? And they always look like they're hiding some sinister sin, right? They always do that to the Christians. I always gripe about that. It drives my wife nuts. Every time there's a pastor in a show, it's always some goober. He's always real passive, always got a collar, and they're not even Catholic, you know? And I'm thinking, man, why do they do that? You know, every time a pastor gets on the screen, I get really nervous. And I'm thinking, why don't they just hire a pastor and ask him what he would say in this moment instead of guessing? That's not at all what we would say, right? But that's how they make the Christian look. Like we're hiding something. Like we really want to get out of the closet, whatever the closet is of the day, and we just can't. So we're really hurting ourselves because we're not authentic. We're not true to ourselves. Like we're shackled to our parents' convictions, and so there's no joy. Friends, maybe this is you, though. Maybe this is you. Maybe you see the world like Adam, standing on the same patch of ground he did, dissatisfied with what God has given you like he was. Maybe you feel like your desires are still unmet like he did. You feel oppressed by God who is holding you back from the things that you really, really, really want, your deepest desires. And you, like him, says, I want to be my own God. I want to be my own God. This is the genesis of foolishness. That's where it begins. It starts there and it evolves all the way to total and utter maddening evil. Friends, you need to know it's not God's intent that you have no pleasure and joy. He wants you to have pleasure and joy. He just wants you to know you're not going to found it in this life under the sun. Can't be found here. Not only does God want you to have pleasure and joy, he wants you to have more than you have. The problem with your joy is not that you have too much, it's that you don't have enough. It's you don't have enough satisfaction. That's the problem, right? This statement that was made famous by John Piper many moons ago that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That was part and parcel with what he called Christian hedonism. Those aren't two words that we typically see together, right? Christian and then hedonism. And that's because to be a hedonist is to search for your own pleasure, to hunt and secure your own pleasure. That's what hedonists do. But did you know that that's what God wants us to do? He wants us to be hedonists. He wants us to seek and hunt and find the deepest pleasure. He just knows that when we find it in this life under the sun, we have stopped short. We can only find that deepest of joy, satisfaction, meaning, and purpose when we land in him, when we find it in him. And when we experience and enjoy the deepest, most satisfying life possible, he is glorified by it. He is glorified by it. But when we foolishly handle this life under the sun to gain the utmost satisfaction here, we end up seeing a little bit of a picture of verses 8 and 9. We're going to go back and reread this because this is tricky. This is kind of something that looks, looks thrown in, right? Looks like he got his attention span abruptly stopped for a moment. And he says, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. This is all he's saying right now, and it's going to be very helpful for us as a warning. When a guy wakes up, and what he does for a living is dig ditches. I don't know what that would look like, right? He just wakes up, clocks in, digs ditch, clocks out, goes home. Does it every single day of the year, year after year. He's a dick. He, he just digs ditches. One of these days, he's going to fall in a hole. I'll put my money on it. One of these days. You got another guy, I don't know, he's flipping homes, he's doing demo or something, he's punching walls down. Eventually, he's going to grab a live wire or a board's going to come back and hit him, or a snake's going to get him, or a rat's going to bite him, or something. If you work with stones every day in the quarry, you will eventually drop a rock on your foot, right? The picture that he wants you to have right now is one of poetic justice. Poetic justice. That's the whole idea behind this odd-sounding, odd-reading part of the passage. We are at the mercy of where we spend all of our time, okay? So what that means is if you play stupid games, you will win stupid prizes. You live the life of a moron you will have the results of a moron. And isn't this when we see our folly the most clearly? When we have fallen into the hole that we have dug? I don't know about you. I, when I make a bad, foolish decision with my time, my money, with my mouth, with my marriage, I will find myself at the bottom of this pit saying, well, here I am again, right? Dissatisfied, snake bit, in the hole that I dug, it's the statement of a fool. And that's what it's like to live a foolish life, going from hole to hole to hole. Is this you? Did you come in today or did you click on this link feeling like you're at the bottom of your hole? Just laying there, looking up because of some foolish thing that you have done. I've got one application point for you, just one. Begin where you are, but take the next step. Start where you're at. You're there. You're at the bottom of the hole. I've been there. Take the next step. Take the next step, which means a, a life of repentance. Practice wisdom by repenting, by starting with repentance and then asking God to give you the power to say no to the desires that stop short of him. Right? Because, friends, listen, if you do nothing to escape foolishness, you'll always be a fool. Because here's something you might already know. You don't, you don't outgrow folly. You can't outspend it either. Which is why we have a lot of octogenarians, brilliant and wealthy, and they still act like fools. You don't outgrow it. Right? You don't age out of it. So what is it, you ask yourself, that I want so bad right now, but I believe that God cannot give it to me? God can't satisfy me in this one department but I, this thing can, whatever this thing is. But you know it's folly to choose that thing. Repentance. Begin where you are, but take the next step. And this is why he says what he does the very next verse, in the 10th verse. He says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Okay, again, it looks tricky. It's not. This is the picture he wants you to have in your mind. Be mindful of the failure of all of your actions and exertions. Be mindful of what's going on around you. If you keep whacking on the same tree with the dull axe, it's not safe for you, and you're going to wear yourself out, and that tree's not coming down. Sharpen the axe. Sharpen the axe. Do something. Do something. Take some action. 
charm the snake before it gets out of the basket and starts zapping people. And by the time you get there, there's just dead people laying around everywhere, right? You're not going to get paid is what it's saying, right? Do something. A person who is mindful of the challenges around them will succeed. The fool doesn't care. Not mindful and it doesn't care, doesn't care who's gonna, what, what's going to hurt him or her. Not mindful at all. I mean, what good is it if you want to be a godly person with a godly marriage and a godly family? What good is it if you want to be godly with a godly life, spending your finances in a godly way with godly friends? What good is it if you are not moving in the general direction of wisdom? It's no good at all. He's saying you don't sharpen your axe from the couch. Listen, if God is showing you today what is consuming you, what is foolish, what is leading to maddening evil, he's leading you to repent. If he's showing you something, if images are coming up in your head or, or there's, a, there's a bookmark that flashes that this might be something that is foolish in your life, you need to know that that's the gift and the love of God for you today. He's showing you this so that you would repent. To turn away from doing dumb things for a dumb amount of time for a dumb prize. That's what we do. Begin where we are, we take the next step. But listen, if this is your neighbor, right? Let's say it's not you or not as much you. And you have a neighbor that is being foolish. And I don't mean your next door neighbor. I hope you understand I'm talking about your fellow man, your fellow person. It's the same thing. Accept them where they're at and then lead them to take the next step. Right? Because here's the phrase that we hear all the time. And listen, when I say this, this is not me just kicking on the pinata because I'm tired of hearing it. I'm tired of saying it, right? This is something I'm, I say in my mind. I want to say out of my mouth. I'm tempted like you are to say, I am done with that person. I'm done with that person. They're always a fool. They're always doing something foolish. It's a massive inconvenience on me. It always affects me. Here's the problem with that. It moves against the grain of the gospel where Christ who is wisdom personified, came for a fool. Jesus is wisdom in skin, comes for the radically unrepentant foolish. Comes for me, comes for you. So when we create distance between ourselves and fools, we might be imaging a lot of things, but we're not imaging the gospel. Because Christ did not create distance between himself and me when I acted my foolish, but he closed the gap. He closed the distance. And listen, we have to be wise with how we handle fools. That's a different sermon, right? There's a wise way to handle fools. And sometimes it is not going to feel like the love that they want at the time. That's why it takes a little bit of time to unpack that. But I can say now, you can't make a fool wise. You can't. But you can lovingly show them their folly. You can't make a fool love Jesus, but you can tell them the gospel in different ways, with different words, at different times, because faith does come by hearing, right? You can't erase the inconvenience of working with fools, but you can look like Jesus when you do it. You are free to do that. And listen, I know that not everybody in here is convinced that Jesus is better than this world. I need you to know, whether you're here or whether you're watching, that folly in this life means facing the next life unprepared. That's what it means. You will be consumed by your foolishness here repeatedly. You will be consumed in the next life by darkness and by shame. But I want you to consider that you've made it this far. I mean, congratulations if you've made it this far and you don't even love Jesus and you made it this far through a sermon. 
But why is that? Why have you made it this far? Could it be that God is doing something beautiful in you right now? Could it be that Jesus is doing something very generous for you, that he's expressing his love for you, that he wants you to have more pleasure and satisfaction than you've ever had before? Could that be it? Begin where you're at. Take the next step. Repent from living this life under the sun. Ask God to replace your deepest desires. Ask God to give you his Holy Spirit that turns a heart that cannot feel because it's made of stone into a heart that can feel because it's made of flesh. Ask your spirit to do this. And we're going to pray in just a moment for you, but I just want to finish by saying there will be a day. I love finishing with just pointing forward and saying there will be a day where our desires and our hungers, they're satisfied. Glory himself stands before us. Our our satisfactions don't lead us into folly, but they lead us into worship. We will be content. No more dissatisfaction. Think about that. No more more growling stomachs. No more flesh that demands more. No more emptiness. No more pits to fall in. No more serpents to bite. We will be cherished by the one that we cherish, and every second of every day will be better than the one that just came before. That's what waits for us. That's what waits for us. It's beautiful. Our God is beautiful. So go ahead and stand with me. And what we're going to do now as we finish this, and we're about to pray together as a church, I'm going to pray for you. But I'd like to take communion with you because we've had to change it from COVID, from having our stations in the back. We've been taking it together. So if you want, if you're, let's out, we usually say it. If you are a Christian and you're not a part of Legacy, we'd love for you to take this with us. Right? We, you're fully invited to take this moment with us. If you are not a Christian, right, we just want you to consider taking Christ instead, taking Christ to yourself, calling him Lord, repenting in this moment, right? That will make, that will mean much more than what we are about to do because what we are going to do will not save you, right? It's the confession of your heart and God's goodness to you that rescues you, right? So listen, if you don't have one of these, if you raise your hand, someone's going to come in here with a big tray of these here in a minute, Let's see if they're on their way in. And I'll just explain while they're coming in here with these. They have two, they have two lids. I know, it's one more thing to be confused about in this world of confusion. But here's, they got two lids. One is clear, and you pull out. There he is. All right, raise your hand if you need one of these. This is a special edition one. It tastes like grape juice today. All right. Thanks, guys, for doing that. And if you pull back the... The clear tab, you can get the wafer, and it's the, I don't know what color is that, purple or red? My eyes are bad. That that one will get you to the juice, okay? So I'm going to walk you through this. It's very simple, but what we're doing is we're taking this together. Think of this as a family meal, okay? Think of this as a family meal that we get to enjoy together. Um, And one day we will sit at another table with our Savior and King and Hero and our noble ruler again at a different banqueting table. And we will get to take a different meal and we will get to, again, for the first time really, take our communion with King Jesus, which will be cool. It will be a little bit better than this too, right? Amen? All right. Father, we thank you for being good and for being sweet to us. I thank you that in a life of doing foolish things, you didn't snuff me out. I'm so thankful. It's just nothing less than your hand of grace on me that has saved me time and time and time again. And those are just the times I can see. (laughs) Those are just the times I can see. And I thank you, Father, for your grace 
to me to be wise when I didn't even know what wisdom looked like in that moment. But you communicated. You showed me through your word, through the kind words of others, what wisdom looks like in that moment. Help us be a people that hunger and thirst for wisdom. You are our better king, the son of nobility, who has come to lead a people of nobility. Wisdom himself coming to the fools to make us wise. And so, Father, as we take this bread, we take so in remembrance of your body that was broken to make that happen. And, Father, as we take your blood together, this juice that's an emblem of the deep sacrifice of your life leaving you so that we would gain life. Your life leaving you so that we would live forever. It's the price of our adoption. It's the price of bringing us into a family that we don't belong in any other way. Sitting at a table that we shouldn't have a chair at without this. You are so good and so kind. And that you did this not for us when we were our most beautiful and wise, but you did that for us when we were our most miserable and most foolish. You saw us when we were most maddening and most evil. And then in that moment, you came close to us. In that moment, you closed the gap. In that moment, you came near to us. And we're so thankful. And it's in your name that we take this juice. And so, Father, I pray for those in here who are sitting at the bottom of a pit and they're looking up and they find themselves eating the fruit of another really dumb moment. They've done something dumb. They've said something dumb. Maybe they're addicted to something they've not been able to get out of. And sure, it's easy for me to stand up here and say, start where you're at, but take the next step. But Lord, I can say that because I have faith that when your Holy Spirit breaks into our madness, you can arrest us and give us the courage we never had, give us the strength we never had, and give us the joy and the love we've never had before. You are the only reason we can beat anything that has been beating us. It's you. So I pray that you send your spirit to overwhelm your church today. And Lord, for those of us in here who are skeptical that you're anywhere close to being as good as the goods of this world, Lord, that you would show them how they have gone from pit to pit to pit. That they, they have done nothing but experience folly. That they themselves have been addicted. That they themselves have found out over and over again that when they have been most happy and most joyful and most satisfied, they are far, far, far from being fully joyful and fully satisfied. Lord, that you would ruin them ruin them from any other affection besides you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And when we worship you through a mask, we all know we're not singing with our voice as much as our heart. So hear our voices and hear our hearts today as we declare you, the son of nobility, our king on high, our hero, our general, our lover, our fighter. You are so good and we are so thankful.